Hello, and welcome to The Interview, a podcast by Mediaite that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and this week I'm joined by Jonathan Carl, ABC News' chief White House correspondent. I called him up this week to discuss the fight to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Supreme Court seat, confronting President Trump in the briefing room, the administration's response to the coronavirus pandemic, and whether the White House press corps has become an entity of resistance to the president. Jonathan Carl is the chief White House correspondent for ABC News, host of the very popular podcast Powerhouse Politics, and author of best-selling book Front Row at the Trump Show, a look at his reporting on the current White House from both inside and outside of the briefing room. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, I want to start with the big story this week. Uh, Senate Democrats and Republicans are in the midst of this pretty extreme battle over whether uh, a nominee to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court should get pushed through before the November election or held until after. Uh, Mitt Romney just gave uh, Mitch McConnell another vote. Based on your reporting, could you help us understand a little bit what we have in store for the next few months? Well, I think that there will be a, a huge push to get this uh, get hearing started. Obviously, we're going to have a nominee on Saturday. The president said he'll, he'll announce on Saturday uh, to start hearings almost immediately, uh, move to a vote in the Judiciary Committee, and to try to get a vote done on the floor before November 3rd. Uh, I think that the timing is incredibly compressed. It's possible that they do that. Uh, interestingly, McConnell still at this point has not, you know, said definitively whether it has to be before the election or could be in the lame duck. But I think that will be the push. If they're successful, you could have really uh, just one of the, I mean, I mean, how many things have we had where we say, oh my God, nothing like this has ever happened. But you could have the vote coincide almost exactly with the vote in the presidential election. Um, you could, you know, be right up on the, you know, almost parallel uh, paths here, the Senate voting to confirm the president's pick, the people voting uh, to decide whether or not Republicans uh, keep control of the Senate and whether or not Donald Trump is reelected. Now, that said, uh, it's certainly possible that this gets pushed uh, past the election. And Mitt Romney was asked <clears throat> directly uh, if his decision to go forward. Now, he's not saying, by the way, that he's voting yes on a nominee. He's just saying that, that if, not, if, if a vote comes to the floor before the election, he will carry out his constitutional duty and he will, and he will uh, cast a vote. He, he won't try to block it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but he was asked, and what if it's a lame duck? And, and he said, I'm not going to engage in hypotheticals. So just imagine with me for a moment, if Donald Trump loses the presidential election um, in a way that is decisive enough that we actually know uh, we're not in a protracted recount uh, and the Republicans lose control of the Senate. Does a lame duck Senate with a Republican majority headed out the door uh, really go forward confirming a lame duck president who is heading out the doors choice uh, to, uh, you know, for the Supreme court. I think that the public pressure will be enormous far beyond the, um, you know, the, the, the pressure of pointing out the hypocrisy of, 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 of Merrick Garland and what happened there. This would, be, uh, this would be the Republicans defying the will of the American people as just expressed in an election where this was a top issue. Not, not you know, this is not a hypothetical, this is not some kind of um, theoretical exercise. Uh, this will have been adjudicated in this election. 
Uh, do they really go forward with that uh, as you know Joe Biden is preparing uh, his transition? I, you know, they might, uh, but I think it, I think the calculus does become different in a lame duck. Yeah, you know that's really interesting because the rationale from Republicans for blocking Merrick Garland and then forging ahead with this nominee. Uh, is that you know the, the people had spoken through a vote that elections have consequences and that when Republicans control the Senate and the White House, they're allowed to nominate someone to the Supreme Court. Precisely. I do I do wonder if, you know, it doesn't seem to me like Mitch McConnell cares necessarily about public pressure like that. Do you see him as someone who would respect uh, something like a lame duck president, a lame duck Senate going out and, and saying, okay, we're not going to nominate someone to the Supreme Court because our principle is that when voters decide, they decide on the Supreme Court as well. Well, I, well, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I mean, he certainly has shown that he's uh, he's got an ability to withstand uh, public pressure and to do what he thinks is right, uh, regardless of of the hue and cry uh, outside. But um, you know, he, he, it's not even just a matter of what is right and and public pressure. It's also what is best for the Republican Party. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, you'll have a new consideration. I mean, I assume McConnell wins, so he's still around, uh, perhaps in, in this scenario as, as a minority leader. Uh, but looking ahead to recapturing the Senate in 2022, um, and looking at the senators that are up for re-election there, and it includes people like, just to name two, uh, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, uh, Marco Rubio of Florida, um, both of whom are going to be running for re-election in, in states that are pretty purple. Um, you know, Florida's gotten redder, but it's you know it's uh, you know the, the, you know certainly Toomey uh, is going to need to um, do what he's done in the past, which is win you know win over uh, some Democratic and independent votes. So uh, you know there are political calculations that, that that just become I think a little bit different in in the lame duck. It becomes less predictable, and and that's probably one reason why. Maybe the maybe the reason why you're going to see, I believe, a real all-out push to try to get this done before November third. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I saw Ted Cruz come out over the weekend and say that this is really something that Republicans want to get done before Election Day. Yeah, um, which would be quite a quite a short time frame, given you know how long it's taken previous uh, judges to get confirmed uh, and voted on by the Senate. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's happened. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg obviously was forty-two days. Although, what's interesting is this compressed timeline. You, you have to look not just at how long the confirmation takes, but um, how long uh, the the nominee nomination selection process. I mean, everything is rushed with this. Um, yeah, everything. And you reported over the weekend that Amy Cone, uh, Coney Barrett, uh, the U.S. Circuit judge, is the front runner. Uh, yeah, to fill I. Seat. And I'll go even further now and say that I think that uh, that she is the uh, likely choice, uh, barring you know something blowing it up over the next two days. I think that that that, that right now uh, it, it it looks all but determined that she will be the pick. I do wonder if you know if we were in a year that wasn't so uh, divided in terms of the partisanship, going back to the Merrick Garland. Uh, uh, fiasco. If Democrats would not be open to considering a, a judge like Amy Cohen, uh, Coney Barrett, or if she would be one that they would oppose outright. Well, I think that she would uh, be opposed by a lot of uh, Democrats. She uh, was opposed by the overwhelming majority for her current seat. Um, mm-hmm. But um, 
you know, I think that I think that it, in, in an, under normal circumstances, uh, she would likely get confirmed and there would be a you know, Democrat or two uh, that they would they would probably support her. You know, she's um, she's been on the circuit court for a couple of years now, uh, almost, I guess, about three years. And uh, her uh, her decisions have been have shown respect for precedent, even in even on cases where you might have thought that her views would have taken her in a different way. So she seems to have um, in, in the time she has been on the court, uh, largely done what she said she would do, which is, you know, I will interpret the law regardless of my own uh, personal views. Uh, she's, um, you know, she's, she's got a lot of, she's got a lot of strong supporters out there, certainly on the right and in the anti-abortion movement and the religious right. Uh, but, but she's also, uh, she's also seemed to be uh, respected by, by, by those who, who are not in those categories as well. I want to but this, of course, is not going to be, yeah. but this is, of course, not going to be about her, her qualifications and all that. <laughs> no. It's going to be the way they did it. You know, and frankly, uh, if the Republicans had not done what they did to Merrick Garland, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the Democrat complaints would mean a lot less, I think. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's, you know, I mean, Donald Trump is, well, there's one thing he's 100% right about, which is it is his constitutional duty to nominate somebody to fill that vacancy. I mean, that is absolutely right. Uh, and Mitt Romney's right that if, you know, that he's got a, you know, duty to vote on it. The problem is that both of those things were true, uh, you know, in for, 2016. For, for, yeah, for Barack Obama and for uh, Republicans in the Senate back then. Let's talk a little bit about uh, President Trump. Uh, you often question him in, in the White House briefing room. The exchanges can sometimes be a little contentious. Uh, earlier this year, he called you a third-rate reporter because he was upset about your reporting and your questioning. And then in May, he actually praised your reporting and called your book, Front Row at the Trump Show, very good. Mm -hmm. uh, you've known Trump for decades since you covered him as a reporter for the New York Post. Could you tell us a little bit about that relationship and how he has evolved since you first started covering him? Well, in many ways, he is remarkably similar to what he was when I first met him in 1994. Um, you know, I was a young reporter at the New York Post, and he was Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, not not <laughs> not a political figure at all, but uh, but but you know, somebody who um, liked to put his name on every everything he owned, and somebody who liked to talk about how everything he had was first rate and the best there was and tremendous and, and all that. Uh, somebody who exaggerated, somebody for whom the truth, you know, was not a high priority. Um, uh, you know, somebody who had an, you know, he was engaging. He was, uh, you know, people paid attention to him. The tabloids loved him. Um, you know, much of that's kind of, kind of the same now. It's just that the stakes are so entirely different in my book. I open with a scene of me first meeting him in Trump Tower in 1994, and I close uh, my book with a meeting where he had summoned me to the Oval Office uh, just last fall. And, um, and I just remember in that second meeting, looking at him, I was sitting across the Resolute desk. He was very unhappy with, um, with, with a, a, one of my recent reports. And, uh, but, you know, but he, you know, he chewed me out, but then he went on and, you know, in a hundred different directions, um, it reminded me of an almost exact echo of the way he talked to me in 1994, <laughs> you know, we're talking a quarter <laughs> century uh, later and I'm looking at him. He kind of looks the same. 
He's, uh, you know, he dresses the same, same bluster, same, the same bluster. It's just that now, instead of talking about how great Trump tower was, which is what he was doing when I first met him and all the great celebrities that live there and why they do, it's the greatest building in New York and it's this and it's that. And uh, he's talking to me about, you know, North Korean missile, um, tests and, uh, and his outreach to Kim Jong-un. And he's talking about, you know, um, uh, all, all the, all the tremendous things, uh, <laughs> that he's faced as president of the United States, the stakes were entirely, entirely different, obviously. I can imagine that must've been a very surreal experience. Yes. Now yes. that, that meeting, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's in the epilogue of your book when you wrote about the, uh, he summoned yeah. you to the white house cause he was outraged about your reporting on hurricane Dorian. Yes. Yeah. It was um, really, really something else. Yeah. Uh, and that actually led you to like, I'd say the, the most potent conclusion in your book, which was that his relationship with the truth uh, and, and the damage that that will do to the future of the country. It, yeah. it, Cause he was falsely claiming at the time that the hurricane Doreen was going to pummel Alabama yeah. and then repeatedly and absurdly insisted that the false projection was actually correct. Yeah. Is, you know, what was that meeting like? Well, um, it was, uh, as you say, uh, it was surreal. First of all, I had spent, it, it lasted nearly an hour and, uh, there was a lot going on in the world. As I mentioned that the North Koreans had just test fired some missiles, uh, raising questions about what was going to happen with his outreach to Kim Jong-un. Um, we, we had just, uh, come out of the mass shootings in Dayton, Ohio and Santa Fe. Um, we, um, you know, it was a, it was a, uh, it was a very tough, tough time. There was a lot, there were, there was a lot facing the country. This was pre coronavirus. Uh, but, but there were crises crashing all around him and he was spending, you know, nearly an hour in the Oval Office, just kind of like, you know, chatting away with me about various things, including about this report. Now the, the context on the report is, uh, is interesting. It was, it ran on Labor Day. Um, so Monday on world news, that was probably the fourth or fifth, you, you, you know how network news works. That was like probably the, 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 the third, fourth or fifth story. I forget which, but I was yep. not the, it was not the lead story. It wasn't the second story. Um, it was, it was into the show, uh, quite a bit. Um, and there wasn't, um, much out of the white house on that day because he didn't, you know, cause it was, it was Memorial, it was, it was Labor Day. So uh, it was kind of a grab bag where I mentioned, you know, various things that, uh, that, that he was dealing with. And uh, he had had a briefing uh, with FEMA about Dorian, which was headed towards Florida category five hurricane had not made landfall yet. Um, and, you know, he, after that briefing or during that briefing, he had mentioned that, uh, that, that you know, Alabama could get hit. And the only thing, the only reason why that got any attention at all was that the National Weather Service uh, office in Alabama put out a tweet saying, actually, uh, Alabama's fine, not, 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 not in any likely path of Hurricane Dorian. So um, I mentioned that in my story, but it was like at the end of my story, it was a quick mention. I didn't make a big deal out of it. It was like, it was- And a, naturally, you know, it's the thing that he seized on. Oh my trapped. God. So, so first he tweeted about it like within minutes of my, so I'm thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's Labor Day's, you know, I mean, I don't even know if my mom was watching my, 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 <laughs> you know, my report, but Donald Trump's watching and he's tweeting about it. And the funny thing is, you know, he's tweeted at me many times, but this, but this time he, 
uh, misspelled my name. He threw an H in there. Um, and, um, and the poor John Carl, as it turns out, uh, with an H, is, is, is a reverend uh, pastor oh, no. in Kentucky. And this guy got, you know, just got pommeled. <laughs> um, and I've, I've since had a, like, uh, I've talked to him. He's really quite a character. A support um, group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and, and so so he realized the mistake and then he and he tweeted again with my name spelled right. I thought that was kind of the end of it. But then he called me in the next day, you know, Tuesday. And, um, and I don't look, I mean, he's, this is not a, an untruth that really matters much. I mean, you might argue it's important not to mess with, <laughs> you know, with, with hurricane projections because, you know, they, people are in the path and all that. But, you know, in, in the scheme of things, I mean, come on wasn't that big a deal, but the way he handled it and the way he was so outraged that anybody was questioning anything he would say and his insistent, his absolute steadfast refusal um, to admit a mistake, even on something as relatively trivial as this and to insist he was right, even when it was clearly and obvious that he was wrong. I mean, this led to a week's worth of coverage, including the famous Sharpie gate a couple of days later in the Oval Office where he's got the FEMA maps and he, and he had taken a Sharpie out to show the cone <laughs> reaching across the panhandle and into Alabama. Um, you know, really just, uh, really just something. But, but, but the serious thing that I talk about in the book is that um, he has, I came to a reluctant conclusion. And, and, and you know from reading my book that this is not an anti-Trump screed. This is not, I, I, I wrote the book to tell the story of his rise and my, um, you know, really kind of the, the bizarre experience that I've had knowing him and covering him and the fact that I was with him as a cub reporter at the New York Post and then I'm facing him, you know, uh, as the president of the White House Correspondents Association. I mean, who would have ever thought that either one of us would have ended up at the White House, let alone that I would be <laughs> covering him. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but, but he has waged a, a, a war on truth. He has... A, habitually called real news stories fake uh when when he doesn't like the uh you know doesn't what they'd like to do he 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 doesn't like the, the editorial line he uh has habitually said things that just are not true even when in times he has absolutely known what the truth is um and it has caused you know a, a healthy chunk of our country to doubt that what they see with their own eyes is true um and it's caused another chunk of our country to refuse to believe anything that he says, anything that our White House says. Um, so we, we have this situation where, um, you know, it's the, it's the inverse of what, um, of what Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the former New York senator, used to say, you know, you're entitled to your own opinion, not your own facts. And now we have, you know, large groups of people in this country that have their own facts and their own, their own stream of information that, you know, is at odds with what the truth is. <laughs> and, yeah. and how do you how do you overcome? How does a democracy run when uh, when people that are deeply divided can't even agree on what the basic facts are? And that's exactly right. You know, you you write in the book that democracy is built on trust, and that if you have this war on truth from the the president of the United States, that'll do lasting damage to to democracy. And I think those words ring true now more than ever given, you know, your book came out earlier this year. Now we're in the middle of a pandemic that has killed 200,000 Americans. And it's a pandemic that Trump and the administration have consistently misled the public about. 
how much do you think the president's relationship to the truth has hobbled, I guess, the country's response to the pandemic? Do you think that plays a serious role? Unfortunately, I think um, that, uh, that what I wrote in that, in that conclusion to my book ended up being prescient and, hmm. um, and we ended up seeing the consequences of, of Donald Trump's war on truth. And we had a, we came to a time where uh, the world, the country needed to be able to trust uh, the information coming out of official sources, uh, that it was no longer a matter of what was going to look best in an upcoming election or whatever, but it, 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 it was a matter of life and death still is. And um, you know, the, the people were looking, should be able to look to our, to our federal government at a time like this and be able to trust the information that is coming, trust that it will, that, 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 is, that it is based on hard facts, on science, uh, not, you know, political calculation. And unfortunately, and made abundantly clear by the president's conversations with Bob Woodward, um, we see that, uh, that, that politics was actually at the forefront. And we mm-hmm. saw that the president actually went out and intentionally and with full knowledge told the American people things that were not true at a time when it really mattered. You're not lying about a hurricane. You're, you're, yeah. you're lying about a pandemic. The greatest, probably the greatest crises, greatest crisis of our lifetimes, my lifetime. No, speaking of which, you, you had a question in the briefing room this month um, that made a lot of news, and it was about Trump's conflicting public and private comments about the coronavirus, which were exposed in, in Bob Woodward's reporting. And that prompted the president to lash out at you, and uh, I think he called you a disgrace to ABC. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is pretty, pretty basic. It was, uh, and I quote, why did you lie to the American people, and why should we trust what you have to say now? I know that it's rare, if not, and correct me if I'm wrong, unprecedented for you to declare something that the president has said as a lie. And I'm wondering how that question came to be for you. Well, you're, you're right. I've, I've resisted uh, using that word, certainly resisted using it in my conversations with him. Um, I, I would prefer the readers or viewers of, uh, of ABC to, to make the judgment to, uh, you know, I, I give you the information. You can decide what the intent behind the information was. Uh, I will tell you when the president has said something that is not true, but I, you know, I've avoided loaded terms like, you know, he's a liar, he lied. He's like, you know, I mean, I, you know, I also, when I covered, when I covered the Iraq war, I didn't, you know, I, you know, I didn't talk about, you know, Bush lied, you know, and we went into Iraq. No, it was like the, the intelligence was wrong. <laughs> and you can mm-hmm. decide what the, you know, I, I, you know, people can decide that it was, it was a lie or it was a mistake or it was whatever, but it's not, but, but in this case, um, I, it, it just, it, it really hit me listening to the February 7th conversation that the president had with, uh, with Bob Woodward. And it hit me, I think, because I attended almost all of those coronavirus task force briefings in late February and March and April, um, almost all of them. And, uh, and I know what the president was saying. Um, and I heard him telling Bob Woodward something entirely different. Uh, he said, uh, he talked about how deadly this was, uh, this, this coronavirus, how it is 
much worse than the flu and it's not the flu. And then you see him go out and say, not once, not twice, but several times, this is just like the flu. It's just going to go away. We're going to be down to zero. We see him saying something, not only that is factually incorrect, which I had pointed out in real time, but something that we now have evidence on tape that the president was fully aware was incorrect and of such a, a matter of such monumental importance. And then there's one other factor that led to the question. And that is the tape that Woodward released uh, from March where the president explains why he lied. He talks about how he didn't want to panic. That's why he downplayed uh, what he knew to be the truth. So you have the president knew what he was saying was not factual and he had a motive for spreading something that was not true. That's why I felt, even though I don't want to appear um, like the president's opposition, I'm not part of the resistance, I'm not his political opponent, I don't want people to see me in there and think I'm just out to get him, but I also have something that is more important than all of those things, and that is that the reporter's first loyalty must be to pursuing the truth, and you part of pursuing the truth is is using clarity of language. Uh, one, I think one of the most important essays that I've ever read, most influential for me, is The Politics of the English Language by George Orwell. And he talks about how um, uh, tyrants can, can use, can obscure the truth in the way they speak, um, which, which helps them, um, you know, uh, fool the people. And so that's why I wanted to be clear. This was a lie. I wanted to call it a lie. It was, I, I, I didn't put extra words in there. I knew exactly what I was going to say when I went in there. Why did you lie to the American people? And why should we trust you now? I just wanted to be absolutely clear to make sure there was no question about what had happened. I did not know how he would react. I figured he would not react well. Um, but he said, I did not lie. And you, if you listen to the back and forth, I said, you really think you did not lie? And then I, and we went back and forth and to his credit, he engaged me, let me, you know, he, he talked over me a bit, but he let me, I was like, you said it was, it was, this was much deadlier the flu to Bob Woodward. And then you went out and told all of us something diametrically opposed. How is that not a lie? So, um, you know, it was, um, I, I just thought it was, was an important moment because it, it was a moment of clarity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I find it it's so interesting that, you know, calling something that the president has said a lie, you know, it's, it's almost controversial now in media if reporters are not calling things yes. that the president has said a lie. And, you know, I agree with you there, you know, there you can fact check his false statements, of which there are many, but you, it's hard to call something a lie unless you have proof that there is an intention to lie. Yep. Um, you know, you need intent behind that. And mm -hmm. this was the, the, the Woodward uh, audio recordings that were released were a very clear example in which you could say, okay, well, th this is the president admitting that he lied for a purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we, it's been quite rare that we've had that opportunity. And, and that's interesting, especially with someone like Trump, who has said so many false statements. But, you know, I, I watched in the briefing room, you know, you're back and forth with the president there. Did you any, see any fallout from the White House for asking a question like that? Or is it sort of part of the game? Well, um, it was interesting. I, I was back in the briefing room the following week and um, 
the president called on me again and, you know, I asked him a couple more questions that were not, you know, it was loaded, but questions that certainly annoyed him. Um, so in that sense, there, there wasn't, he continued to engage me. I would have asked it even if it meant I was going to get thrown out. I mean, I, you know, mm. I, I think you know, there's a tendency, um, uh, or a temptation for, for white house reporters, for reporters on any beat to, uh, to try to um, curry some favor with the people you cover. So you will, you know, get access, get stories, get whatever. That's always a temptation that is out there. You know, you want to get the good stuff. Um, and, and the truth is there, there's no good stuff to be gotten from, from these people. And that's not the way it op. That's not the way, you know, you, you, it's just not the way to operate. You, you, you need to go out there and, and do your story and, and, and earn respect, not favor. Um, so I was going to do it anyway. And these, this, this white house has shown an ability to be very vindictive, um, mm. witness the efforts to, to take away, um, Jim Acosta's press pass, you know? Um, but I thought what was interesting, even in the Jim Acosta fight, uh, which I was a part of as the white house correspondence association fighting for his right, you know, to have yeah. that pass, uh, when he won at court and when he appeared that, that the, the very day that he came back to the white house, uh, the president had a, you know, press availability and the president called on Acosta. <laughs> you know, it's like right there. So no, I, I really didn't actually get, I mean, I got, I got flamed on social media by, you know, various people. Um, sure. But, uh, but, but, but I didn't really get any, there were no consequences in the white house. You, you speak about not wanting to be part of the opposition to the administration. And, you know, that's obviously not the, the role of reporters, but it's, it's no secret that I think the press has gotten more pointed in their questioning of the administration. And that's, that's particularly on display at the White House press conferences. Now, I think that's, that's justified in large part because the current president has a record of dishonesty that's pretty prolific. And it's not just Trump, you know, I remember Sarah Huckabee Sanders admitted to, to prosecutors that she had lied from the mm -hmm. podium. Um, and in your book, Front Row at the Trump Show, you do have some criticism for reporters like Jim Acosta, whose contentious exchanges with the president, uh, I think in the book you describe them as embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the press has fallen into the trap of becoming a body of resistance to Trump when they should be? Uh, I suppose, more reserved in how they question the administration. I, I do believe that, unfortunately, there is a big chunk of the country that believes the press is now the resistance. And I think that's really unfortunate. And I think that it's, um, it has negative consequences for, for a free press. I think it has negative consequences for our democracy. But I think that the aggressive questioning of the president, particularly now in the wake of what we've seen unfold with the pandemic um, is absolutely necessary, not, not only justified, but necessary. And I, I was quite critical of, uh, of, of Jim Acosta. I also uh, believe Jim Acosta is a fine reporter. And I think that, um, Things that, that, that events that have played out since those early days of the, of the Trump White House uh, have, in some ways, vindicated uh, 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 Jim Acosta. I, I think that uh, I think that Jim, you know, was right to be uh, uh, 
to, to, to be outraged uh, that the president was declaring a free press an enemy of the people. I was too. Uh, he, he expressed it in a, in a more pointed way. Um, and I, I respect that. And I, and I, you know, frankly, if I was writing the book right now, I, I, I would probably write a little bit differently about, uh, about Jim. I, I, I understand fully where, where he was coming from. I wouldn't have done it in the same way. I didn't do it in the same way. Uh, but, but I, but I respect where he was coming from. Interesting. I, I think there's to a certain extent, there's, there's only so much, I mean, reporters can take with a certain administration, you know, and, and yep. when the president, you know, comes out and, uh, you know, says a series of false statements or berates reporters or calls the press, the enemy of the people. Um, I think it's very understandable that the press, uh, will get more confrontational in their questioning. I think the issue becomes when a certain segment of the population just ends up tuning out what the press has to say and just listening to the president. Um, and I think, you know, coming back to the calling the president uh, a liar, that can, I think that often has backfires because it does, you're yeah. not reaching yeah. the, the entirety of the population because they're just tuning out. And you're really only reaching people that already believe that the president is a liar. So as an as a act of reporting, I'm not sure how, how effective it is. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I think that one of the biggest challenges facing, um, facing uh, an independent free press in this country is finding a way to speak to the entire country. Um, and I think that one thing that is important is as we hold Donald Trump's feet to the fire and, 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 and through our reporting, uh, uh, hold him and his administration accountable uh, for the truth. Uh, that we have to do the same with everybody else. And, um, you know, there is no pure objectivity in the world, but I think that the method that reporters use must be objective. We must use the same method regardless of, of who we are covering. And make no mistake, there are uh, tough questions to ask Joe Biden. Um, there are tough questions to ask uh, uh, Democrats going into this election. And, you know, we, we, we damn well better be asking those questions. I'm not saying it's the same. I'm not saying Biden's the same as Trump in terms of his relationship with the truth. He's not. Um, but um, I think that we uh, need to be pushing Biden to be accessible to reporters um, and not just be doing, you know, a limited number of interviews with, uh, with friendly outlets. We need to be uh, pushing him to be out there answering questions. And we need to be asking uh, serious questions and doing, um, and doing, tough reporting the way, the way, the way we have done of, of Donald Trump. And, and I think that's one way to show uh, the whole country that there is, there is value in having a free independent press that is not tied to a political party. We are here to pursue the truth, try to get at the facts, uh, regardless of who is in power. Now, I was listening to your podcast the other day, Powerhouse Politics, and you were discussing Jeffrey Goldberg's reporting in The Atlantic about Trump's comments on U.S. veterans. And you expressed some skepticism about the story. You noted it was kind of eagerly accepted by many, despite being based on anonymous sources and denied by many officials on the record, including John Bolton, who's not the biggest fan of Donald Trump. At least he denied a, a certain part of it. He said he wasn't in the room when, when Trump uh, made those mm -hmm. comments. Could you expand on any reservations you have about the story and perhaps about the way you think it was received? Well, first of all, I think Jeffrey Goldberg is one of the best journalists uh, alive today. I mean, I, I, I just, I've, 
I think he's, I think he is first rate. And um, <clears throat> I've learned so much by reading him over the years and, you know, his interviews with, with Obama and his, his interview mm-hmm. with, uh, with King Abdullah is he, the, the guy's first rate. So I, I, I'm not, I'm not raising questions about his <clears throat> method in writing that story. I'm just pointing out that it was based on anonymous sources and it was quickly challenged by sources speaking on the record, some of whom you could dismiss as being, you know, questionable, but some of which you can't uh, so easily dismiss. And I think that there was an instant um, accepting as gospel what was what those anonymous sources told Jeffrey Goldberg. Again, I don't doubt that Jeffrey had sources and told him exactly what he reported, but but they didn't put their names to it. Um, and mm-hmm. the people denying what was said did. And in a, uh, if it weren't Donald Trump, if that was a story about, you know, Joe Biden or Bill Clinton or whatever, I, I, I just think that there would have been a little more skepticism about the story. You know, this was um, also the case with the, uh, you know, with the, with, with the, the BuzzFeed story that, that BuzzFeed eventually ended up, um, uh, essentially retracting about about mm. the Russia investigation. Uh, BuzzFeed goes out, reports it, and you know we didn't jump on it at ABC, but but it's all over cable news. Everybody's just you know as if it's like fact. And then it you know turns out to be a little less than, <laughs> than what was there. Uh, it took BuzzFeed a while to get around to uh, you know to uh, to to essentially retracting it. Uh, but but the eagerness to believe anything negative about Donald Trump um, leads to a, uh, you know, leads people to be a little bit too eager to, uh, you know, to believe anything uh, yeah. without, without going through the normal method. That's what I get to, you know, get, get to the objective method. What is the method? And by the way, uh, you know, um, you now have HR McMaster who has gone out. Now HR McMaster was not there um, during the, the incident with the cemetery in France. He was not national security advisor at that point, but he did spend a lot of time um, as an active duty three-star general and the president's national security advisor around the president dealing with issues uh, related to the troops. And, you know, he said he never heard the president say anything like that. I mean, those are important. Even if you, you know, consider Jeffrey's story, you report on it, you can report that he did, that he did it. I, I think that you also need to at least acknowledge that there are, you know, serious uh, people who are on the record um, saying something differently. And now when Trump leaves, whether it's 2021 or 2025, do you think that, you know, this, this sort of odd, vicious cycle that we've had between the president and the press, you know, from his attacks on the media and the response from the press, perhaps an eagerness to believe bad news about the president, do you think that that's something that ends with Trump or do you see these as more permanent? Well, I, I do think that, that the pendulum will swing. God, I hope it will. Um, and that we will get back to, you know, more normal relations uh, between uh, the, 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 the press and, and the people we cover. Um, you know, there's got to be a natural tension. There always has been a lot of, there always has to be natural tension, Lord knows. You know, I had, you know, tough interactions with both the Bush and Obama White Houses as I covered them. Um, but, you know, if I could, if I could say one thing that I really 
believe needs to needs to come back and I believe ultimately will. It's the idea that the White House press secretary is a public servant and not, you know, a political operative um, and, of course, is speaking on behalf of the president and, of course, is going to put the president's uh, positions and statements and policies in the best light, but, but has, a, has a greater obligation to, uh, to, 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 to provide information to the public about what, what the executive branch is doing. You are not Baghdad Bob if you are the press secretary for the White House. If you are, you are undermining our democracy. So I, I really hope that we can, we can get back to the notion of, um, you know, a, 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 more, a more traditional approach to, to, to that job. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and look out for our coverage of my conversation with Jonathan Carl on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.